US President Joe Biden gives his first press conference at the White House since taking office, and many have asked what took him so long. The owner of the huge vessel that has blocked a section of the Suez Canal has apologised for the backing up of ships within one of the world's most important trading routes. And candidates in the mayoral races currently underway in London and New York City continue to set out their stalls. We'll have the latest on each race for you before the end of the programme. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 25th of March and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today from London is Monocle 24's Colotta Rebello and from New York City Monocle's Henry Reese Sheridan. Henry, Colotta, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Uh, Colotta, it is a Thursday so almost the end of another week but a brand new episode of The Urbanist has just been broadcast here on Monocle 24. Can you give us a sneak peek of what's in store for us this week for those of us who haven't had a chance to hear it yet. Hi, Tom. Yes, this week, well, we're, I know we've been, we're going to speak about uh, Mr. Biden in a few minutes from now, but actually this week we're looking at, you know, the new dawn for transportation in the United States. Uh, people will know that Joe Biden is uh, nicknamed Amtrak Joe and now having uh, Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, at the helm of the transport, as a transport secretary, uh, has opened up all these questions about the future of transit in the United States uh, so we profile a bit um, the state of the rail infrastructure in the country, a few of the more uh, groundbreaking initiatives to try to shift the conversation away from automobiles, particularly on the West Coast, as we know, very car-centric part of the US. Um, and yes, a little uh, wondering and musing on what uh, this pairing of Amtrak Joe and Mayor Pete can bring to the country. And Henry, I'm imagining that you're fond of a, of a train journey or two. Are you dreaming of the day you can hop back onto a, an Amtrak train sometime in the near future? I'm fantasising nightly about getting back in the uh, in the, the banked seats of uh, the uh, uh, Long Island Railroad. <laughs> We're glad to hear it, Henry. Keeping us guessing on what that adventure will look like. Henry Sheridan and Carlotta Rubello, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin today's show in the United States, where President Joe Biden has given his first press conference since taking the oath of office in late January. Some had asked why it's taken President Biden so long to hold a formal press conference. It's been 65 days since he assumed the presidency, and every one of his predecessors since Calvin Coolidge, who was president for the majority of the 1920s, had all held a formal encounter with the press by a comparable point in their presidencies. Uh, before we get into the importance of the presidential press conference, uh, today's encounter with the press for Joe Biden comes at a, a particular time of pressure for him early on in his presidency, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're likely to see, you know, Joe Biden being pressed particularly on the issue of gun control in the US. We need to remember that uh, two um, mass shootings happened within a week uh, very recently. Uh, also, the figures for unemployment have been released. So that's likely to be another 
major uh, focus um, of this press conference, at least when it comes to the questions being directed at him. Um, as you mentioned, uh, it's been 65 days since, um, well, 65 days and no formal uh, press conference has been held. Um, a lot of speculation on why that might be the case. Um, uh, you know, the idea that we were so overwhelmed during uh, the Trump years uh, that perhaps is not a bad thing now not to be around the clock looking at what the next press conference might be saying. Now, um, Biden's White House is, of course, under a lot of pressure because of all of these issues. Uh, Immigration is another one as well. But also, I think... um, the, you know, this is the first time uh, that he will be addressing the nation since um, the COVID-19 relief bill has been passed. And uh, there's a lot of questions uh, there as well um, on what that means in reality for citizens. So these are all a lot of really serious, consequential issues Um almost a perfect storm uh, in a weird way. I don't think this press conference could have come at a better time uh, in terms of people needing answers and in terms of helping Biden um, using use this platform um, to um, pro, pro, uh, to properly uh, spread the message that he's trying to say from his White House and from his administration. And Henry, there had been a growing chorus of commentary and questions asking why Biden hasn't held a press conference before now. In your opinion, do you think those questions have sort of put a bit of a focus on on the value of a a president taking questions directly from the press? Do you think those questions were ultimately fair? Uh, I do think that they were fair uh, to an extent. And I do also think that they uh, shine a light on or throw into relief um, what exactly the point of uh, official White House press briefings are. They're a somewhat unusual type of interaction between uh, the highest elected official in America uh, and the press. Uh, uh, they're somewhat theatrical. Uh, you know, everyone I'm sure listening is familiar with the format, the uh, the, the president standing at the front of the White House briefing room uh, behind a, uh, a lectern, uh, picking reporters who form the, right, the White House press corps, uh, which is a kind of uh, prestigious group uh, of, of, of journalists that have their own culture. Uh, it's, it's faced criticism in the past uh, for being a forum for grandstanding on both sides of the lectern, both the president uh, in, uh, well, presidents uh, in the past and the journalists that are called upon uh, uh, sometimes can uh, use it as, can use it as an opportunity to kind of uh, flex or be a bit theatrical. But I think that it's a legitimate mechanism for holding the president to account. Um, and and I also think that it it does provide a degree of uh, visibility uh, uh, for people to be able to see the president. It reaches a broader audience uh, than interviews with, for example, specific press outlets, um, which is what Biden has restricted himself to so far in his presidency. Uh, So I I think that although uh, they can be uh, made fun of or the utility can be questioned somewhat, I do think it's important for presidents to engage with them, particularly a president like Biden, who is looking to re-establish uh, what is considered a normal relationship uh, with the press after uh, Donald Trump's presidency. 
Well, we will have further analysis for you from today's press conference at the White House on tomorrow morning's edition of The Globalist here on Monocle 24. That begins live from London at 7am London time. Well, next here on the late edition, the effort to unblock the Suez Canal has entered a new phase as Dutch and Japanese salvage teams have been brought in to try to free the 220,000 tonne ever given from the bank of one of the world's most important shipping routes. The vessel ran aground after reportedly being blown off course by strong winds on Tuesday. Henry, the owner of the ever given, has apologised for the delays this incident is now causing. But there are several reports circulating today about what might have to happen to to free up the route. We've heard from one salvage company at the moment that it likely isn't going to be possible to free it while the cargo is on board. Uh, unloading that cargo is likely to take several days. It's, it's quite an unpredictable picture uh, still, isn't it? Yeah, so I think the last time that a vessel got stuck in the Suez Canal, it was uh, also a Japanese vessel, I think back in 2017. In that instance, tugboats were able to refloat it within a few hours. This is a completely uh, different situation. The CEO of one of the salvage uh, company's parent company uh, has compared the ship to an enormous beached whale uh, uh, and, and has said that, it, as you mentioned, could take weeks to refloat, and that could involve a complex process of uh, sy- systematically removing uh, the, the cargo from the ship to make it light enough to ref- uh, refloat. Uh, and it's difficult to emphasize the extent of the disruption that, that, that this causes to global trade. Um, a, a massive proportion of the world's trade, uh, well, the cargo, cargo anyway, shipborne cargo, Go through the Suez Canal, uh, and and I think aside from the um, aside from the potential disruption to global trade, this could also cause a, uh, a a kind of wild crisis within the shipping insurance industry. All of the companies that have lost time and money because their ships have been delayed by this stuck ship are going to be filing. Uh, their own insurance claims for damages, uh, and well, you can only uh, imagine how how messy that might get. And Colotta, at the time we're going to where the, the reports are that there are some 150 ships backed up at the Suez Canal. Uh, this is only the third time, I believe, that the Suez Canal has effectively been closed in this way since it opened all the way back in 1869. So it is an extremely reliable thoroughfare historically. Even so, do you think that the, the grounding of the Ever Given has shown that there is still a precariousness to global trade, given just how vast the volume of goods that passes through the Suez Canal every day is, and now that much of that traffic has has ground to a halt. It does make you pause when you think that because of this incident, uh, 10% uh, of the world's uh, trade is currently uh, halted, uh, waiting for this, um, for it to be, for the ship to be removed uh, by one of the salvage or by all of the salvage companies. Uh, It's just unbelievable to think um, the damage, you know, a situation like this can do. What is this alternative solution? I have no answer for that. As 
as you said, it has happened in such rare occasions that perhaps it doesn't make sense financially, you know, to um, look at another alternative. Um, the problem now is also, I know that Henry was mentioning just there, you know, the crisis it might cause, cause for uh, uh, insurers, but also for Egypt, who relies a lot on the trade uh, that goes through Suez Canal f- as part of a lot of the money that comes into its own economy. And I'm not sure if, you know, if boats are just there waiting, if any money is actually coming in um, and how much of an impact this is actually uh, going to have. Uh, I know there's reports emerging uh, right now about um how the possibility of even removing the container ships which oh, that are on board of this vessel, which could help, you know, bring it back afloat. Um, just that process would take weeks. Uh, and there are questions about the insurance of the contents there, because obviously um, the people who put their uh, goods into those containers um, are perhaps not insured for them to you know, uh, be taken off the boat uh, into a different country. Uh, so there's so many questions here. Every time someone seems to have the solution, um, it's just this, a gift that keeps on giving, this story. Uh, but unbelievable when you think uh, the amount of trade that it's currently halted because of this. Well, we will be monitoring the events at the Suez Canal in the coming days here on Monocle 24. But finally, here on the late edition, there are mayoral races underway in both London and in New York City. We can check in with the state of both sets of campaigns now. Carlotta, to begin with you in London, last night, the the two leading candidates for the mayoralty in Britain's capital city, uh, the incumbent mayor, Sadiq Khan, and his leading challenger, Sean Bailey, they met each other virtually for the first debate of the campaign. Um, give us a roundup, if you could, of, of what was discussed and whether now the, the lines, if you like, are, are clearer about what the central issues are going to be now in London's mayoral race ahead of Election Day in May. So currently we are at an interesting point with the mayoral race. Right before this debate uh, between uh, Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey, uh, most of the headlines ahead of the debate were basically something along the lines of um, is Sadiq Khan's re-election inevitable? Uh, he has you know, been quite um, firm when it comes to values that Londoners um, uh, really hold dearly on the issue of Brexit and obviously London being a really diverse city with a lot of European Union citizens uh, being Londoners too. Uh, He, throughout his mayorship, has been a a staunch defender of preserving the rights for European Union citizens. Uh, Throughout the pandemic as well, um, we need to remember that it was also during his mayorship that London had the most recent terrorist attacks and his reaction to that um, has also been praised. So Sadiq Khan overall has been uh, a really good mayor uh, faced with um, quite incredible and unprecedented challenges. Now, the debate that we had between the two of them um, basically, you know, started um, with a conversation about crime and education and essentially um, each other blaming one and the other being obviously Sadiq Khan versus the Conservatives um, and making the streets safe. Um, There was also a conversation, a a bit of the debate about the pandemic and how um, to safely reopen the city and um, to balance the needs of individuals individuals versus the economy. Um, Sadiq Khan has been, um, over the past uh, couple of months, 
criticised by the way uh, that TfL Transport for London is doing at the moment, which of course the fare revenues have fallen by nearly 90%, which is no surprise to anyone, uh, since uh, the UK has been mostly in a lockdown over the past 12 months, with people basically being not allowed to be on public transit unless they have an, a, a medical exception or an exemption uh, because they are essential workers or key workers. Um, so um, it's not surprising to see that number, but I, you can understand as well how uh, in the lead up for an election, that number becomes contentious. Um, it, the you know There was this quite an interesting moment where they were talking, they were asked um, what they thought of each other. And um, Sean Bailey um, was the first one to answer. And he said something along the lines of, oh, one of the great things, you know, about working uh, in London's assembly is that we work well, you know, across the aisle and we are very cordial to each other, um, basically saying he has nothing bad to say. Um, uh, he doesn't think anything badly about, you know, Sadiq Khan as a person. And Sadiq Khan basically replied to that in the lines of, um, I'm sorry, but I disagree because I cannot support someone who has made really controversial comments, particularly against minorities in the city. And how can this be a person running for mayor? So that was quite a, an interesting moment that no one was expecting, especially after you know such a cordial message uh, from uh, the opposing candidate, um, there's still a lot uh, uh, happening until, of course, the election day in May. Um, but this so far has been, you know, a hint of uh, the key issues that this city is facing at the moment. And as things slowly start to reopen, um, perhaps more answers and questions will emerge in uh, on when it comes to who will lead London um, after this. And Colotta, I think we can hear a portion of that interaction that you were just describing for us now. Let's just get a, a final kind of thought. Do you guys, I mean, we're getting on famously, of course, but do you, do you like each other? I mean, do you have respect for each other? You know each other a bit, the London Assembly and the Mayor? Who's going to answer that one first? For me, it's not personal. Of course, I respect Sadiq. He's got a big job. He's the Mayor of London. He has things to do. I respect all of my colleagues. One of the great things about the London Assembly is how collegiate we work. I've got to be honest, some of the things Sean has said about, uh, uh, about Eid, about Diwali, about women, about girls, about multiculturalism, about those that receive benefits, uh, I get deeply upset by. They're not my values, okay. they're not their values, and I hope uh, Londoners reject those values on May the 6th. An interaction there between the main contenders in London's mayoral race, uh, Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey there. And it's interesting, Carlotta, isn't it, that, you know, the simple fact of being cordial to your opponent seems like such a novelty here. Do you think, in terms of the mood so far among the electorate in London, is there an engagement with the process so far, would you say, or is it still fairly up for grabs with these final weeks to go before before Election Day? Um, I would be extremely surprised if Sadiq Khan is not re-elected. Um, I, I think that's the best way of phrasing it. We need to remember Sadiq Khan has a great story. You know, he's uh, the first uh, Muslim mayor in uh, of uh, City Hall in London. He's a son of a bus driver. Is a great personal story as well that really represents the city more than anything else. Um, so that is very important uh, too. Um, there's been a, quite a drive over the past few weeks to get people to register to vote 
um, for a postal ballot here in the UK. You're mostly always automatically registered, but obviously because of the pandemic and so many people shielding or not being comfortable going to polling stations, I don't recall in um, the nearly decade that I've lived in the city ever seeing such a push for the postal ballot. So that might change, you know, um, numbers in certain areas. It will be interesting to see if that actually has any impact. And Henry, to switch focus to the city uh, that you live in, we have discussed these early stages of the mayoral campaign in in New York with you previously on the show. But a new poll uh, suggests that in the race for the Democratic nomination for the mayoralty, uh, that it's still wide open, the race there. Yeah, so a new poll came out this week, which puts uh, fully 50% of Democratic voters as undecided on who they're going to support. Now, Democratic voters are basically the only voters who count in New York, because whoever wins the Democratic nomination uh, is almost guaranteed to go on to win the morality. So that really is a, 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 a very high number of people who haven't decided yet. Um, among the, those who have decided, uh, Andrew Yang is the front runner, normally followed in most polls, by Eric Adams. And they're engaged in an ongoing war of words, which is uh, only uh, uh, poised to heat up. Uh, So we're slightly under three months until the election. Apparently, it's quite normal uh, for the kind of uh, attack ads and really aggressive uh, uh, campaigning to uh, not be in full gear yet. Uh, that comes uh, in May. Uh, but but timing aside, uh, or that normal kind of campaign uh, uh, cycle aside, uh, you know, obviously the one, one thing that might explain why there's such a high proportion of undecided Democratic voters is that under the pandemic, uh, candidates haven't had the opportunity uh, to campaign, uh, giving speeches in front of big crowds, getting down in the subways and kind of greeting uh, commuters, just getting among it. They haven't had that th- those opportunities. And so for this spate of candidates, many of whom are relative newcomers to politics or don't have a huge amount of name recognition, it is a challenging environment in which to get their names out there. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if if uh, the proportion of undecided voters remained relatively high uh, uh, all the way up until until voting day. And that challenging environment aside, Henry, just finally, I was speaking to a friend who's a journalist in New York yesterday who said that, you know, he was looking back at, uh, you know, the 2014 race for the mayoralty in New York and that Mayor Bill de Blasio, who obviously went on to win, sort of came from nowhere at that time in that campaign uh, and surprised many by, by eventually winning. Have you got your eyes on any candidates who might be realistically likely of performing a a similar kind of surprise or upset as these months of of campaigning now uh, rumble on in New York? Well, I think that the big question mark uh, uh, hovering over, over, over the race is whether Andrew Yang's support is going to translate into a strong election day performance or if it's merely a reflection 
of the fact that he's entering the race with by far the most amount of name recognition due to his participation in the Democratic presidential primaries last year. Um, he has been attacked pretty relentlessly by his competitors for just basically not being New York enough. He was raised north of the city, away north of the city, upstate in Westchester County. Uh, he's been criticised for spending a lot of the pandemic outside of the city, again in a house upstate. Now, Andrew Yang has explained that one of the reasons that he he chose to spend so much time uh, upstate was to make life easier for his son, who has autism. It's there, there are commentators who are saying that the relatively high level of support for him is going to disappear when it really comes down to the crunch and voters become more engaged because he doesn't have fantastic connections, frankly, within the traditional uh, community of political kingmakers in New York City, which are kind of uh, lobbying power brokers and also unions. Uh, one of the biggest unions in New York recently endorsed Eric Adams, his main competitor. So I think the kind of mercurial nature of the support for Yang is, is, is the most uh, uh, elusive factor at the moment in the race. Well, both races in New York City and in London are ones we will be following closely here in the coming weeks up until Election Day in both places here on Monocle 24. But for now, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, thank you both very much indeed for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Today's programme was edited in London by Louis Allen. A big thanks to him as always too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Urbanist, which we heard Carlotta talking about a little earlier in the show, which premiered a short while ago here on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.